Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Okay, welcome everyone. We're so happy that you're listening to the Reframers today. Hello, yeah, I'm Zach. Uh, I am one of the co-hosts joined by Aaron. Hello. And my wife, Cassie. Hi, I'm Cassie. I am the wife and the best friend and the third wheel in this little Reframers <laughs> party. And we're really excited today. We're going to be uh, starting off with a discussion on the Electoral College. Yeah, so we're really shooting off fast out of the gate with the super exciting topic. It's relevant today in 2021 and really excited to get this going. Our inaugural episode of the Reframers podcast. Very exciting. So something about the Electoral College that I wanted to mention is that it's this word that's out there right now. And a lot of people are talking about it. It's very much in the conversation, particularly because of the 2016 election. And I, it's one of those things that a lot of people know about, but don't totally understand, I think, because it's a little bit of a complicated process. So we wanted to give an overview of the Electoral College and then get into different arguments that we have about why we should have it or maybe why we shouldn't have it. Okay. so. The Electoral College is a system that we use in the United States to elect the president. Basically, every state is granted a certain number of electors based on that state's population. So for example, in California, this is our state. It's a really populous state. We have 55 electors, whereas a state that has a smaller population, like Idaho, has only four electors. In total, there's 538 electors. That's the number of the House of Representatives plus the number of senators. A presidential candidate needs to win 270 electors to win the Electoral College. One important thing to note is that 48 out of the 50 states award Electoral College votes on a winner-take-all system, which means that if a candidate wins a popular vote in the state, all the Electoral College votes for that state go to that candidate. So using California as an example again, if 50.1% of the population votes for candidate A, then all 55 of California's electoral votes go to candidate A, rather than splitting the votes between candidates. So this allows for a candidate to win the popular vote, but you can actually lose the election because you don't get enough electoral college votes. Do you wanna guess how many times the popular vote has actually been won by the person who ended up losing the election? Zach, Cassie, any ideas? Two. I was going to say four. I think it's been four times, but I might have cheated and looked uh, earlier today. So it's happened five times. Um, do you know when the first time it happened was? I think it was Van Buren, I want to say, but I don't remember. It was all the way back in 1824, which is crazy that that's the first time it happened. And the, it happened in the 1824 election because there were multiple candidates and the electoral college votes got spread out over different candidates. Later on, it only happened when there were two candidates. So it happened again in 1876, 1888, 2000, which was the Bush versus Gore election. And that's when it kind of modernly became um, a really big deal. And then it happened again in 2016 in the Trump-Clinton election. So that's kind of the overview of the Electoral College. Do you guys have Very, anything else that you think we should add about that? 
So yeah, Aaron, actually I found an interesting bit of information about the Electoral College from archives.gov. And from there it says that there's been over 700 proposals in the last 200 years to um, either modify or completely eliminate the Electoral College, which on average comes out to about three and a half proposals per year, which is more than any other single subject in our in our history. Um, so that's that's pretty amazing that this has been such a uh, ongoing and hot uh, debate, even though right now it seems like it's really re prevalent. Um, it's definitely an old topic of conversation that we've been kicking around in our in our history for a long time. So Aaron, why why do we have the system? Because I think the United States is the only country that votes for a president or a premier in this way. So why do we do it this way? Yeah, that's right. So we're the only country in the world that uses an electoral college system. We have it, simple answer, because it's in the constitution. So if you can find it in article two, section one, it describes the electoral college process. It's complicated when you read it in the constitution. So there's other resources. The archives.org website that Zach mentioned is really great. Um, it has an awesome page on the electoral college with links to other things. So um, that's a good place to look. But to go back a little bit further before even the constitution, what did the founders think? What did the framers think about this system? So it's interesting because it was a source of discussion and contention at the constitutional convention, like almost everything was. Something to keep in mind is that the framers disagreed on a lot of different things. And we think of the constitution as sort of being this immutable document, but the way that we got to some of the provisions was based out of compromises that some of the founders didn't even wanna make. And so some of the debates surrounding the electoral college, for one, it had to do with their deep mistrust of an executive in general. So the founders were coming off of the revolution, well, you know, from taxation without representation, from King George, from having all of this imperial oversight from Britain. And so they really didn't want an executive that was going to come in and have a ton of power. And they were also really concerned about making sure that the powers were separated between branches. So one of the reasons there's an electoral college system is that they didn't want to use a British system where the executive was chosen from a line of a monarchy, so a line of a family, or even how the uh, system works today, which is where the parliament actually chooses the prime minister. So that's not what we do. They wanted to make sure that the branches were separated. And so some founders had argued for the executive to be chosen from the House of Representatives, voted for by the House of Representatives. But that got uh, voted down. And so that isn't what they ended up doing. And then some argued for a popular vote. Those also got shouted down. And what happened was this compromise system where states would vote for electors and then the electors would vote for the president. So some of the main reasons that they wanted to do this is because the, they had this idea that electors are going to be more informed and more qualified than the general population to make this decision. They also want like I mentioned, to keep the branches of government separate. And then finally, they were concerned about a democratic mob of the general population steering the country astray, kind of worried about that. And that doesn't work in the same way today because electors don't have the same amount of autonomy that the founders envisioned them having. But back when they first created the Electoral College, 
electors didn't have to vote the way the the general population voted. They sort of had this autonomy to choose the president and the uh, people just voted for electors. That's not how our system works today. Like I mentioned, most of most of the states have adopted this system where you have the winner take all. So you just vote for the popular vote. Um, but back in the day, that, that wasn't how it worked. And so if you want a really good overview of what the founders thought and how they argued for the electoral college system, I would direct you to Alexander Hamilton's Federalist 68. That gives you a really good in-depth view of what they were thinking when they created this system. And one of the things you mentioned, Aaron, in there was about how the founders were very much concerned about anything that was resembling what the British had. They, it was like almost like paranoia where it's like if it even could be interpreted as kind of British, the, the founders were very cautious of doing that here. And then they were also very cautious about what they called like the tyranny of the masses or the tyranny of the majority where you would have, like you mentioned, people just, you know, voting and, and they're uninformed. And so this was a compromise that took place to say, okay, the large states wanted to have more power and the small states felt threatened by that. So they said, well, what if we have this system where you're kind of, it's, this is a, one of the ideas of like the representative republic, right? Where it's not a direct democracy. We're going to choose people that will then choose for us. Yep, that's just about it. So <laughs> as we see, the founders also had to make compromises, and this is a system that they came up with. That was a compromise. And there's a lot of arguments today that it doesn't work the same way in our modern system. And this is one of the reasons why I think there probably have been a lot of proposals about this. It wasn't, I mean, I would argue that it wasn't a perfect system when they first created it and that some of the flaws of it have come out over time, which I think it's true of a lot of the constitution. But I'd be curious, uh, Zach, since we're talking about it, where, where do you come out on this debate of if we should have an electoral college or not in the United States? Remember when we talked last time, my, my actually opinion has changed since we've talked on this before. And if, if this is the first you know, t time you're hearing us on the Reframers pod, uh, just as a little bit of background, Aaron and I often would go off, you know, wandering uh, in a, a party and talk about whatever hot button issue was, was prevalent of the day. And so that's kind of where the birth of this podcast came from. And um, in one of those conversations, I was much, I, I think I was much more pro electoral college all the way. And, and yes. after kind of looking and, and, uh, reading some more since then, I think I've actually softened a little bit on that. I still think that the, overall the electoral college is a good idea um, on, on one of the resources I found, which um, I think is really nice, was procon.org. It just kind of gave a simple uh, nonpartisan layout of here are some you know pros and cons um, for the electoral college system. And I think that there is a certain legitimacy and you know, it's, it's tradition and not necessarily tradition means we have to keep doing it. If it doesn't serve us well, I think we should be able to reflect on that. But I do think that um, the system has worked well for us before. We've had a lot of different presidential elections. And most of the time, it seems like the popular vote has gone with the electoral college vote. But I do see that a lot of the reasons why the founders created the electoral college 
are, are just their antiquities. They're they're they've they're no longer relevant. Um, one of those is that you know nowadays the general population can all be pretty much the same level of informed. Information can be reached anywhere, and that was not the case when the Constitution was created. So that's one of the the cons for it is that nowadays you can have everybody voting know pretty much the same information. Wait, can before you go to the yeah, I want to follow up on one of the things that you said. So you mentioned that it works most of the time because most of the time the person who wins the popular vote wins mm-hmm. the election. And that's true. I think um, we mentioned this only five times that hasn't been the case. What so do you agree that it's important that the person who wins the popular vote wins the election? So I think that it's an indication. So one of the things that I that that I am one of the reasons why I'm not completely for let's just get rid of it in general is I saw an argument that I, I actually made a lot of sense to me was that if you have if we completely abolish the, the electoral college system, it almost creates an incentive to have more of a like a parliamentary system where you'll have multi- more people running. Um, and so, you know, if you have more third party candidates, it might create situations where you have people that are getting this guy got 19 percent, this guy gets 12 and maybe the major parties get, you know, 30 or 40 percent. But it's still it creates a plural a plurality rather than a majority. And so I think that would be a reason to say. In an ideal world, yes, to answer your question short, shortly, in an ideal world, yes, the person who wins the popular should also win electoral college, and then it's no contest, right? It's it's universal in, in all the ways we measure that person won. But I think that works well in a two-party where you're pretty much going to have somebody over 50, but if there are three or four or five different candidates running, that creates a little bit more confusion and it becomes less clear. So that would be a reason why I would say maybe we just amend one of 700 proposals to amend the total college system rather than just, you know, get rid of it entirely. That's really interesting. So just in case anyone doesn't know, if there isn't a candidate that wins 270 votes, then it goes to the House of Representatives and they decide who the president is. So that's what happened in 1824 when there was this split and there were multiple candidates and no one ended up making it to the number of electoral votes they needed to win, which back then was not 270 because the, the Electoral College was so much smaller. Um, I, I take your point that potentially there could be a plurality if you have the system where it's a popular vote I guess I just think that that's never going to happen in the United States because of the power of political parties, which is another thing that I think the founders really underestimated. Um, You can go look at James Madison's Federalist 10 if you want some information about how they thought about factions, or at least how the Federalists thought about factions. But I just don't, the way that our system works now, particularly with voting for House of Representatives and Senators, uh, we're just dominated by two political parties. And I don't think that changing the Electoral College changes that. I think you'd have to change all of our systems of voting in order to decrease the power of the two main political parties. And so you're just not going to run into a problem where you have Congress 
or the House of Representatives choosing the president because someone is going to get enough electoral college votes that it's just not going to be an issue. I think probably most of the time you're right. I, I think, you know, 90 plus percent of the time that's going to be the case. I would be hesitant to say, let's get rid of it without there being a, a solid plan in place. And one of the things I thought that I'm sure I'm not the first person to, to think of this, but one of the things I thought was, what if we changed or the states changed the winner take all system? So that way you have the states. So the popular vote for each state says, okay, if California has 55 electors and the the state goes 60-40 for one candidate versus another, then the 55 electors are split 60-40. And then that's how, so then it still is like, it's, it's almost a, a hybrid of, of a popular versus elector. We still have electoral college system, but it's a little bit more dispersed amongst the states and the state's electors. Yeah, so that's actually what Nebraska and Maine do now. Those are the only two states that don't use a winner-take-all system. Um, and that I think that you could use that. There's also another um, big system that several states have uh jumped onto i think it's called the um it's the national sorry the national popular vote and you can look at this website it's nationalpopularvote.com and it what it is is the states who have agreed mm. to join this national popular vote uh pledge their electors to whoever wins the popular vote of the country and so you can actually guarantee if if you're a state that has joined this, so you can guarantee that whoever wins the popular vote nationally will win the electoral college. If you have a certain number of states agree that they just pledge their electors to whoever wins the popular vote. So right now there's not enough states that are like logged on to this who have agreed to do this um, for it to actually guarantee that that will always be the case. And it's also a little bit impeded because most if not all of the states that i think have agreed to it right now are typical blue states and there's this sort of perception that is if you do the math doesn't actually line up that the electoral college helps republicans over democrats there's this idea out there and in 26 and 20 both of those times the democratic candidate won the popular vote and lost the electoral college but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case you know you change mm -hmm. some populations around and move some district lines and electoral mm -hmm. college could benefit democrats more than republicans this isn't like a thing that has to always be the case and so and that's i just want to put that out there because i think that's an argument that people kind of have even if they don't really understand why they have it like mm -hmm. oh i want the electoral college because it kind of helps my party that's not necessarily true. That's been true mm -hmm. the last couple of times it's happened, but it, it doesn't always have to be the case. Um, and so that's like one way where without the national popular vote system is one way where if even without changing the constitution, you could actually guarantee that the popular vote is the, per the, the person who wins popular vote wins the electoral college. But a certain a, a, enough states have to sign on to be willing to do that for that to work. So I have a question about that because doesn't that kind of, to me, it sounds like on the surface, maybe it's a good idea. However, I also hear in 
in the back of my head something that says, but doesn't that kind of discredit the actual voters of that state? Because the voters of the state could say, and I know that that that, that can be the case, right? Like you said earlier, if California votes 50.1% for candidate A, then the 49% that voted the other way, their votes don't matter. But at least it's within the state. If you have a state like, I don't know, uh, Colorado. Colorado says we voted uh, R and the national popular vote went D, then you know, if that state voted 70% R, then that's a that's a, a huge majority of that state that says, well, tough. The state law says all of our electors, even though 70% voted R, all those electors now go to the Democratic candidate or vice versa. I, I, you know, the party yeah. stuff doesn't matter as much. But to me, that sounds like now 70% of that state's voters, their vote or their voice has been completely disregarded. Yeah, I don't know that you can actually say it's been totally disregarded because that's valuing the state over the quote nation. And I think this is something that we do in the United States because we have a system that is it's a federalist system. We have a national government, we have state governments. But at the end of the day, who actually wins isn't going to change because the popular vote is the one that matters. And so your vote still matters because it's going to this huge pot as opposed to just your state vote. It's basically just takes the electoral college out of it. It means the electoral college doesn't really matter because you're ultimately going to end at the popular vote. I get what you're saying. I just, I think yeah. practically it doesn't actually make that difference. Whereas when you just have the electoral college system and a winner take all, you know, you really are disregarding a lot of votes because someone sure. who is voting in Wyoming is going to have a way more important vote than someone who votes in California or Texas. But it still is proportional, right? It still is tied to the amount of electors that that state gets. It's not like those people voting in Wyoming, like they're their impact is can only be so big because of the amount of electors that they get based off of how many house reps they have and plus their senators. So it's like that. I mean, that was the original compromise. How we got to the electoral college system was the small states were like, we're not joining the union if we're going to be overrun by the populations of the large states. Right. But. And this is the argument, and maybe this isn't exactly the argument you're making, but the argument that I hate the most from people when they want to argue against electoral college is, well, what are we going to do about small states? You know, if we don't have the electoral college, they get left in the dust. Presidential candidates don't go there. Our voices don't matter. But here's the thing. You're not actually arguing that if we don't have the electoral college, your voices won't matter. What you're arguing is our voices are more important than the voices of all the populist states. It's the same argument. You're basically saying like, oh, our, vo our vote needs to matter more because if all the votes matter the same, then yes, the populist states are going to have more say. But that goes to a one person, one vote kind of theory where everyone's vote is weighted the same. And so I don't like that argument. Because all it's saying is my vote should matter more. So I hear you. And, and I, I don't 
think that's the argument I was making, but on a scale as big as the United States is, and I think that, that that's part of the, the hesitancy I have in saying, let's just throw the whole electoral college system away and go pure popular vote, is that, yeah, one person, one vote. In, in premise, if it's a, a class president thing, right? If it's 30 people, 100 people, we're voting for you know somebody to be the leader of a team or something like that. That's something I think that the, the human mind can get around easier and say, yeah, I think out of this class, I know everybody. I think, you know, I think Aaron is really competent and should be our leader. So I, vo I vote Aaron, right? You wouldn't want a total college system in something so small. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. I have all the information I need. I know the people involved. But I think the problem that I'm, I'm running into is that the states, the needs of a smaller state are different than the needs of a big state. And I think that some of that gets lost if we shifted to a pure popular vote. And so while I don't think that any one person's vote or people in a state have should have more or less weight, you know, air quotes, weight associated to their vote, I do think that as a state, the needs of that state are different, small state to big state. And so that's that's where I'm a little hung up. And that's where I think maybe it can be amended, but not completely, you know, just thrown away to a pure popular vote. Super interesting. Okay, so I love this. It's, I think that the state argument makes sense when you're talking about something maybe like the Senate. And yes, there's different needs for state, different sizes of states. And we have a super diverse nation geographically and culturally, you know, so it, our system of federalism has broken it down into these more like bite-sized pieces where this governance can happen at a more local level. It's a super interesting system. I don't think that argument works when you're talking about the president though, because he's not just the president or she is not just the president of, of states. It's the president of the citizens of all the people who live in the, in the nation. And so it's not the states that really matter when you're electing the president. It's the individual people who matter when you're electing the president. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not fully convinced Aaron, but I do think that you make a good point about the people are electing a executive rather than a, uh, you know, governor for their state right like it's a different it's a different way to think about it and so that that helps me i think get my head around your argument a little bit better rather than like the senate right where you said the senate is more diverse and that makes sense versus we are electing as a as a body as a populace one executive so that that does make sense to me yeah and i think just like one more thing on this that to me is convincing is that it better protects minority voters in those states that do have big populations of certain parties so you take california for instance there's actually a lot of republican voters in california which is something that people don't realize there's yeah. big swaths of california that are very conservative yeah. and in an electoral college system their, their votes don't count but you use a popular vote those votes suddenly matter Right. Mm -hmm. So it incentivizes candidates to go to all these different states. And I think that I think it gets really overstated that 
a president will end up going only to the big populous states. I really don't think that's true. If you're, you're going to win the entire nation and you're basing it on a popular vote, yeah, you got to go to basically all of the states. I mean, you need to, to represent on a much broader level. And so we're also incentivizing candidates not to just hang out in swing states, which is super annoying because then they just spend all of their time you know, going towards certain states and also really focusing on narrow issues because those are the issues that those particular states care about. And it's more important for them to be represented on a broader level. So I think it'd be more challenging for presidential candidates if they have to do it this way. But I also think it would give them a more holistic view of the nation that they're representing. That's interesting that you say that because that was actually... Um... You, you used it as a positive, right? That that if we move to a popular vote, now presidents will have to campaign everywhere um, versus right now, what is it? They campaign in Ohio. Uh, they go to Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Florida, Florida. And then it's like, all right, sweet. Uh, I think I read something when we were, when I was looking up this article that something like 80 or 90 percent of uh, Hillary and Trump's all of their campaign stops. All of them, both candidates, was only in like four or five states. So that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's just like, why? Why? That doesn't make any sense. So that's interesting that that you're saying that that is a, uh, that if we shift to a popular vote system, that that would be a positive, that it would incentivize candidates to travel everywhere. Um, Because I was reading, I can't find it now, but I was reading something that said it's actually, they were viewing it as a negative to say that now presidents or candidates rather candidates would only need to travel to the most populous centers to say if i can get you know new york uh new york city los angeles san francisco houston and seattle probably way more than that but just as an idea if i could get those five states then i'm good i don't need to go anywhere else versus you're flipping it around saying no you have to go everywhere now I really think that you would need to like that. And this is where I think it gets a little bit overstated Mm -hmm. is that you don't actually have enough people in those big populous places to win you the election. It's not Mm -hmm. enough people. And that, you know, take LA, for example, you have the hugely conservative population of Orange County in LA. Mm -hmm. It's not like you go to LA and win all the votes for LA. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think they would have to actually be more diverse and go lots of different places. They couldn't win just camping out in the populous places. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably true, right? I mean, especially, I would say, especially after COVID, right? With with how yeah. population centers really um, kind of diffused and, and separated out, I would say it, that trend will likely continue. And then and then and then that proves your point, I think, more than the, than the other. Yeah. And, and that is one of the things that I do you know, even though I am in favor, you know, in favor of keeping electoral college system, becoming less and less so, I think over time, um, <laughs> that this the swing state thing is so annoying. That's just like, yeah, here it is. Okay, I found it. Donald Trump. So this is from ProCon.org. A 2016 episode of NewsHour, PBS NewsHour, revealed that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have made more than 90% of their campaign stops in just 11 battleground states. So it's like, okay, that's a fraction of the population compared to, you know, the rest of the 40, 39 other states like that. That is wild. 
It's true. And I think that if we did change to a popular vote system, say, say this happened, I mean, yeah, California, which is the state where we live, you know, so we keep talking about it, but it's very relevant to us. It would get a lot more attention. That's very mm -hmm. true. And there are states who have had lots of attention for a long time who would really not like that. And I get mm -hmm. it. You know, you're you're mm -hmm. getting showered with the presidential attention at this point. And so, yeah, it would be a power shift. Mm -hmm. And it probably wouldn't be perfect for the first couple of elections. You know, maybe candidates would spend way more time in populist states and then realize it doesn't work or it does work. You know, it's not like this system would just be fixed overnight because we moved to a popular vote. But mm -hmm. we would be changing to a system that would give every, would make everyone's vote count in a way that it doesn't now. Yeah, I think that's probably a good point. You know, it's it's very interesting and it's hard to know what, what the future would hold, right? It's hard to, to predict and say, here's what would or wouldn't happen. But I think some of the points for abolishing or at least modifying are hard to ignore in 2021. How do you reconcile this? I mean, you could say, I mean, the easiest thing to say if I was to purely play devil's advocate is, well, the framers thought it was the right thing to do. And so it's tradition that's in the constitution, you can't change it. Like that's, that's the easy, like, I didn't, I didn't study, uh, and you're <laughs> asking me to defend my position. Like that's the easy one, but looking at, you know, some of the points you brought up in swing states and, um, how the, the representation is calculated, I don't see an overwhelmingly compelling case for keeping it as is. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that this is something that we want to just keep in mind as we have these discussions is that we have this like just religious adherence to the constitution as it's currently written. And this is this is beyond the discussion of the electoral college or anything else, but we have to remember that the Constitution is a flawed document. And I say that as someone who loves the Constitution. I love our system of government. And I think in large part, it has done a great job. And it's insane that the founders created what they created um, and that it's survived for 200 years. I mean, it was so novel, but there are problems with it. I mean, it, it institutionalized slavery in a lot of ways. And, you know, there was a system that they created so that it could be amended and it's been amended mm -hmm. 27 times. I mean, mm -hmm. that doesn't count the, the bill of rights, the first 10 amendments are part of that 27, which happened right after the, um, constitution was written. But still, I mean, that's 17 more amendments to the Constitution. I think that we get really adherent to, you know, being very afraid of changing things when the Constitution itself provided options for change. And the founders also didn't expect that we would have no changes over time, especially as society develops. And so, you know, I want to respect the constitution and, and what it entails but i think it's a mistake if our reasoning for keeping some things is just it was in the constitution mm -hmm. yeah I, I think that's true i mean i i agree i think that's always when people are are down on the founders i'm like yeah like they weren't perfect the system they created wasn't perfect but it was the most perfect at the time and they left us room to say what needs to, you know, make changes as, as the country, they, they said, make it hard, right? They, they didn't make it. So it's like, oh, 
you could wake up on a Tuesday and just change stuff, but they did leave you an avenue to change. And so, um, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it is, uh, time to, to look at that, uh, process. Yeah. The, um, to play devil's advocate on myself, the, I have heard one argument that I think is convincing to me, maybe not on why the electoral college is a good thing, but why there could be problems with the popular vote. And that has to do with thin margins and recounts. So if you think about doing a recount on a national level because the vote was so close, I mean, that is like an actual nightmare scenario. So when you break it down into smaller chunks, you don't have to do that. And I think that you could probably work around that by having states still keep track of their own populations. And so if there was margins, you know, you could go by state margins, but even then that you're probably doing full state recounts in a number of states, that would be a problem. For example, JFK won against Nixon with just over 111,000 votes. So popularly. And so that's a like that is not very many. Whereas when you look at today, you know, Joe Biden won by millions of votes. So that's a different that's a different thing that you're looking at. But if the if the margin was very thin, you have a problem. Yeah, because currently if there's an issue with the votes, each state has to certify its votes to choose its electors. And so if there's an issue within a state, it's contained to the counties within that state. And so then it's it's done, the recount is done more at a, a local level versus if you're doing a national, if there's a national issue, then it's like, okay, well, is the problem in Oklahoma or is the problem in Arkansas? And so to figure out like, okay, where's the, where's the discrepancy? Does that mean all 50 states have to do a recount? That's that's iffy, right? That's that's a lot. Right. That, I mean, that that would then <laughs> which would be terrible. <laughs> that would probably then affect the date we inaugurate too, because already even this year with all the problems, and this year was an anomaly. This past twenty twenty election, like there was concern in in political circles that the electors wouldn't have been certified on time for them to vote in middle of December for the inauguration to happen on the date that it's supposed to happen in January. So it's like, okay, if there's a, a massive nationwide recount, does do we then also have to change the date we do inauguration? And uh, obviously we wouldn't have to choose electors anymore, but but it might shift that out in a, and have additional ramifications. Right. I think that there's ways you could probably work around that by breaking it down by counties. You know, I, I'd have to look at that more and obviously someone much smarter than me would need to figure out, you know, how you deal with that problem. But that's one problem that that's an argument that I have heard on just a very practical level of, okay, this is something you'd have to figure out if you were going to do a popular vote. And with like the concerns about just counting votes and voter fraud, you know, whether you think that's legitimate or not, it, I think that those fears are probably a little bit compounded when you rely on a popular vote over the electoral college. Yeah, I think that's probably true because we've all been to the DMV and we know how well government functions in general, how efficient it is, how it gets things right every time. Um, parentheses sarcasm right like we know government doesn't is not a perfect institution and so if you're going to say okay now 
we're going to have the states run it and the federal government is going to oversee all state uh, polling places and things like that. It's like that might open up a lot of more room for error in a national election. But again, who's to say, right? It's it's a little bit, we're just kind of speculating now, but. It's important to think about what the practical implications of some of this stuff are. I think that it's it's fun to talk about like, oh, no, no this is, we should definitely have a popular vote, but. It's more nuanced than that. You can't, when we come into these conversations, it can't just be like, well, this is like clearly the obvious way it should work and it should work. You have to actually like fight through a little bit of this, you know, the practicality of how how government actually makes this happen. Nothing is ever like so clear cut black and white where it's like, this is clearly the correct answer. This is clearly the incorrect answer. One of the good things that I like to do is ask, and then what? It kind of gets you past the the initial, you know, maybe for a lot of people that are listening, the initial kind of gut reaction of, you know, electoral college good, electoral college bad. And then it puts you into the mindset of what you were saying of, okay, we go to a popular vote and then what? And it kind of makes you think about, well, how would we do that? What would need to happen? What other, you know, ramifications would that have? And you can kind of do that with anything. And it gets you past that first level thinking of just, you know, what's my party think about it? And into what you were saying about how does it practically happen? What are the impacts, you know, and so on. For sure. So I want to think for a second about this has been, this is interesting because on a lot of these issues, which you'll all come to find, Zach and I actually do disagree on things. I feel like we've agreed on a lot on, on this topic. And I think part of that has just been a progression over time of we've talked about this before and understanding each other's views and also just looking into it. But you'll see there's things we don't agree on. But something we really want to focus on is, well, at the end of the day, what's the most important thing? Like what matters to us? So the bottom line is that there's usually something that we collectively want of what's best for the country and what we want for the people who are living here. So I think for me, when it comes to something like the Electoral College, the thing that matters most to me is that everyone's voice is being heard. So what do you think, Zach? What what matters most to you when you're thinking about something like the Electoral College? Yeah, I think the same. Honestly, I think, you know, it. what's the best system to make sure that the people who are voting are being counted and accounted for correctly and you know reliable honestly i would say reliable i think that's probably uh important after the 2020 election is to have a system that we as americans no matter what you know how you cast your ballot a system that is people believe in that is respected and that it it works those those are my takeaways for sure and just to add when you're talking about democracy voting is just it's the pillar it's the foundation you know you can't have a democracy if you don't have a, a way to vote in a way that's fair right fair. that's i mean it's yeah. it's so number one yeah for sure and and that's true for you know electoral college is funky because it's it's the it's the unique one right it's the it's the one that's funky everything else is like you know you're voting for your uh, you know, your sheriff or your school board, you know, uh, president or whatever it is. It's like, those are a lot easier. 
and we don't seem to have issues with those so maybe that is a you know further evidence to support changing the system because those ones seem to be pretty straightforward year after year <laughs> governors right. all of that seems to work out okay right <laughs> i wrote some notes down as you guys were talking i can touch on them and maybe if they make sense you can put them in earlier but you hit some of them great job guys one of the questions i had was have we had any updates since the constitution to the process of the electoral college i know that you mentioned there were 700 suggestions i wondered if any of them had been adopted Voting changed a little bit. Like we have the direct election of senators now, which we didn't used to have, which means that people elect senators directly through a popular vote. And it used to be elected through um, the, the legislatures of the states, individual states. Doesn't really affect the electoral college, but it's just yet another example of sort of a system where it wasn't direct and then became direct later on. So it's actually something in our history that we've done before we've changed. So the 12th Amendment revises presidential election procedures by having the president and vice president elected together, as opposed to the vice president being the runner up in the presidential election. Maybe you heard this in Hamilton. <laughs> yep. So I think Jefferson is the one that changed that. And that was proposed December 9th in 1803 and um, ratified in June 15th, 1804. So in only half a year was that proposal uh, uh, birthed and then approved. So that, that one was, was happened pretty early on. Very interesting. Yeah, re refer to Hamilton for some, uh, you know, white hot lyrics on that <laughs> and Aaron Burr being angry yeah. about it. Bad <laughs> Hamilton is pretty historically accurate because otherwise I learned all those lyrics for nothing. Another question I had was the likelihood of changing or abolishing the Electoral College. And I was wondering who is the who is pro winner take all? Who would have to agree to make any changes to the system? So if you're going to amend the Constitution, you need to have three-fourths of the states agree. Right now, that's just not going to happen because there is a perception that's probably true that the Electoral College benefits certain states, and they ha really don't have an incentive to change it. So we don't have enough states right now that would get on board for something like that. So the Constitution itself is probably not going to change in the near future. But using something like the national popular vote system, if you got enough states to align on that, because states choose how to run their own election processes, this is actually something that was controversial during the last election of allowing mail-in voting or allowing um, people to send their votes early or de deciding when you count mail-in votes. That, that's all determined by states. That's not determined by the federal government. And so how you count electors is the same thing. So states can choose to do this national popular vote. It's not really winner take all because you're pledging to the popular vote system. And if you have enough states that sign on to that, you don't actually have to change electoral college. 
but we don't have enough states right now. There's 75 more electors that would be needed. So depending on the states, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know exactly how many you would need. It's somewhere between like 13 and 25 or something more states you would need to sign on for that. As Aaron mentioned, you can, you can change the constitution either by two thirds vote of both houses of Congress or by two thirds of the state legislatures. So those are the, the, the bodies that would have to agree to this either way, either two thirds of, of both houses would say, we think we should change it and propose the amendment or two thirds of the states basically getting together. So it, it would be pretty tough in today's, today's environment. I was wrong. I said three fourths of the states, two thirds of the states. Listen to Zach, constitutional scholar. <laughs> via via Google, via, <laughs> via the keyboard. You too can be a constitutional scholar. Don't yeah, it. right. It's, it's pretty easy. Just look up all the constitution says. <laughs> yeah. Don't make it up like I just did. <laughs> well, in general, I this was something that I didn't. It wasn't really in my consciousness until more recently, and. I think it's easy to hear an idea that you you hear one side of it and you think, oh, that makes sense to me. And then you hear that some people are against that idea that you think you believe in or think that makes the most sense to you. And then that can feel like an attack, attack against your vote being heard, being counted, mattering as much as someone else's. And I thought that this was a good example of how different groups of people and states have different needs different concerns and how we might come up with ideas and solutions and fixes um, that can address different aspects of those changes and and they they won't work for everyone, which is why why we need to discuss, which is why there's 700 suggestions on how to change and amend this and not not any of them have gone through because I, I like what you guys said about the goal is to make sure everybody's vote counts and weighs the same and nobody is not not valued the same. And I think it's fun to hear people come up with solutions and hear it be contentious and start really fiery and then end with all we all want is for everyone to not get stepped on by someone else. Well said. I like that. Yeah. Well, who knew that talking about the Electoral College could be really fun? I mean, we did, but still. We did. We knew. We did. We knew. <laughs> so that kind of wraps up our discussion on the Electoral College. I hope everybody listening had a great time. I hope it was informative. I mostly hope that today we set a good example for how to have uh, a good discussion with some disagreement uh, in a way that was productive. And I think I got a lot out of it. And I hope you listening at home or in the car or at the gym did as well. Um, if you did enjoy the episode, please rate us, you know, five stars, uh, wherever you listen on. Um, it'll really help us out. This is our first episode. We're super excited to get this project off the ground. And we would really appreciate your support, uh, especially early on. And while you're at it, uh, you know, just use your thumbs or your finger and get to YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and follow us at Reframers Podcast. Um, that's where we are on social. We'd really love the support, and that's where you'll be able to stay up to date with uh, new episodes that are coming out, uh, news, 
sneak peeks for the next week, all that kind of good stuff. So um, speaking of sneak peeks, Aaron, uh, tell them what we're going to talk about in episode two. In episode two, we are going to tackle the very easy to discuss topic of gun control. Don't be scared. <laughs> Don't be scared. Come ready to ready to listen, ready to learn. Both of us are going to be. Uh, this is going to be a fun one. We're going to we're going to have a good time talking about it. Sorry, and I don't think that we've actually talked about this before. I think this will be a new topic for us. Uh, Cassie and I have, but I don't think we have, Aaron. So this will be this will be new. Yeah, we've barely talked about it ever. So yeah. it will be really interesting to see where where we end up. Um, we also want to mention that if you have questions about what we talked about this episode with the Electoral College, please, please. Send us those questions. You can send them to us on the podcast platforms or on our Instagram or Twitter. Send those to us. And then also let us know if there are topics that you want us to discuss. We would love to hear what you are all thinking about and what you want to be hearing on this pod. We also have an email if, you, if you're more comfortable emailing. You can also email us your questions at reframerspodcast at gmail.com. So that's R-E-F-R-A-M-E-R-S podcast at gmail.com. All right, guys, we're looking forward to doing some more of this and we'll see you next time. Yeah, guys, thanks again for joining us. We're really excited to have this conversation with you. You know, our goal is to give people hope that we can have more conversations than arguments and reach more agreement and um, just continue to try to reframe what it means to talk about hard things. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.